welcome to a series of recordings I'm just calling Spiritual Living, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, But I want to set these up by talking about um, something that I've been learning and noticing about the spiritual life um, that I feel like doesn't get talked about very much, Um, and use that as a launching point to get into a series of uh, recordings over the next couple months um, that I think will help us with kind of where we are in the season we are in uh, on this journey that we're on together. So here's here's the big idea. One thing I'm noticing about myself and I hear from other people, and lately I have been hearing from teachers who have been teaching and guiding people in, in the spiritual journey of following Jesus for a long time, is that we go through these seasons. Um, and I think when I was younger, I always hoped that this would not be the case forever, but now I think I'm realizing that this is the case. This is sort of the nature of the journey. And the nature of the journey is that we have these moments of clarity, inspiration, um, drive, you know, we're motivated. Uh, the path forward seems clear. We are hopeful. You know, all the things that you need to get started on something. And that as you go, um, a lot of those helpful things that got you started start to fade. Um, And they fade for various reasons. Maybe uh, clarity starts to fade and things become confusing. Um, Maybe the motivation uh, shifts or the inspiration shifts because life situations are difficult, kind of like, you know, hitting reality. Um, And then also just the nature of a day-to-day life Um, you know, it's a grind. Um, And so we have these kind of long then seasons of maybe feeling confused, feeling like things aren't clear, not sure why we're doing what we're doing, punctuated by these moments of clarity, revelation, inspiration, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I used to think like there was something wrong with me (laughs) because of this sort of this pattern. and what I think is being pointed out um, is that actually, no, this is, this is a, a pattern of spiritual living that we go through. Um, there's been a lot of different ways of talking about this pattern. Um, but lately, one image that's been really helpful to me is this image where we step into the boat with God and um, we, <laughs> we're moored to the dock. And so we're, we're in the boat. We're in the water, and yet we're still kind of attached to these things, the dock, that uh, represents sort of the things that make sense to us. And that's fine. Um, This is how we understand things. This is how we kind of have a sense of, I don't know, our own little sense of control. And then in the boat, we kind of get comfortable, and we lay down, and eventually we take a little nap. And while we're napping, God, um, with a playful smile, comes up, 
and just begins to unmoor the boat, um, to un- unwrap the rope that is tying us to the dock, and we drift out, and we wake up and we freak out. Now, <clears throat> one reason I like this is because, you know, oceans are vast, oceans are, are big, um, and I think in the analogy we could say, you know, God is not just on the land. God is, God is out there. God maybe even is this vast ocean which we're just like dipping our toes into. Um, and getting out there means getting lost. And yet, that's also where God is. And, and so the, the thing that I feel very impressed upon, and I've been thinking about a lot over the last month, month and a half, uh, is how we get into these seasons of feeling lost or confused or not having our moorings. And we think that something's wrong. Um, we think uh, we need to get back to the dock. And oftentimes there is sort of some, some return to normalcy or some return to understanding. But this idea of like, I am doing something wrong because I've, I don't feel that same sense of certainty or I don't feel the same sense of drive or motivation that I used to, that is a, um, it's an interesting trick of our emotions. And the thought that can enter in then is that, you know, maybe maybe this really doesn't matter. Um, maybe, maybe I can't walk this path that I was inspired to walk or hopeful to walk however many weeks ago or months ago when I began this journey. Um, and so what I want to do over these next several recordings is be, be very pragmatic, extremely practical. Unfortunately, today is not one of those super practical talks. This today kind of has to set things up so it'll be a little more of a um, a big picture talk, but imagine it like <clears throat> when you get into the weeds of the day-to-day, week-to-week living, we, we really get into the details and it's easy to lose sight of the big picture. So the way I see it is sometimes we have to zoom way out, kind of get our, get our bearings. It's like pulling out our map and compass or whatever and saying, okay, where am I? Where am I going? What is this next little season for? Whatever. And then you put the map away, you put the compass away, and you start walking again. And so I'm hoping that this recording will be a a bit of a map talk. And then over the next several um, couple months, every couple weeks or so, I'll kind of put out a new recording and it'll be more of like, a okay, we're walking, we're doing this, how does this work, what's going on? Um, Super practical kind of stuff. All right, that was a long setup. Um, So... Let's jump into the, the, big, the big picture, kind of zoom it out, get the big 30,000-foot uh, um, image. So this is how big I want to go. <laughs> what, here's the question, what has Jesus really invited us into? <laughs> um, that's a big question. What have we been invited into? The way that I'm not phrasing this question is, what is the gospel? (laughs) But that's kind of what we're getting at. So let's start with Jesus' statement. If you ask any, you know, New Testament scholar, what was the thesis of Jesus' message to us? They will say, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, Interestingly, I want to start at the end of that phrase. So we'll get back to the kingdom of God and repentance and belief, but I want to start with gospel because, as many of you will know, that word 
That's we get our word gospel from an English word, but the Greek word that is that the the writers of the New Testament used when they are referencing Jesus's message here, gospel, um, is the, the same word that we get our word like evangelist or evangel from, and it does mean this good news. But Jesus is borrowing that term from his context. It is a term that a king or a ruler would use especially if they were like conquering a new area or expanding their kingdom and they would go to the people who live in that area and they would say, this is the gospel, well, our word gospel, um, euangelion is the word that they would use. In other words, hey, great news, you've got a new king and all you uh, who will swear allegiance and fall in line with this new king, there are going to be all these wonderful things that happen to you because this new king is so great. And, you know, even as early as like 9 BC, like right before Jesus, we have archaeological examples of this word being used as Caesar Augustus is expanding his empire and making announcements. I think one of them was even changing the date of the calendar to revolve around his birthday. So this is the term, what we think of as gospel. There is a king. You are now, you know, like right here in this kingdom. And for the people who heard that term, that was not a theoretical term. That was a very, very practical term. Um, That means there is a very new reality, probably new laws, new customs. In other words, your life is probably about to change. Um, we in Christianity have kind of conveniently turned, you know, theologized that. And I don't think we did that intentionally. I think we have received a style of teaching that has made this into a a theory, right? Jesus comes, says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And when we hear that, we don't think, oh, like that means my life is about to change and the way that I live needs to shift and, and become a part of this new reality, It's more like a, oh, that's something nice that I should believe. (laughs) Um, And part of it is our issue with that word believe, which we'll talk about in just a second. But what Jesus, I think, is trying to impress upon his hearers is there is a very real reality. Now, they, of course, were thinking in terms of physical kingdoms, especially the Jewish people, thinking that um, this is about a Jewish leader kicking out the Romans, etc., like But Jesus, throughout his ministry, is affirming, no, this is a spiritual kingdom. God is spirit. And this transcends these petty human boundaries that we have, these distinctions that we create. And what it is, is it is a a worldwide, cosmic-wide kingdom. Um, And that this kingdom's focus is on governing, um, the, the focus is not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So the other thing that Jesus is emphasizing over the course of his ministry, so one is that like, for instance, in the conversation with the Samaritan woman, it's, um, she's saying, you know, where should we worship this mountain or that mountain? And he says, no, 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 God is spirit. You got to worship in the spirit and truth. This mountain, that mountain, that's not the issue, right? So that's the physical versus the spiritual. But the other issue that Jesus often is helping people realize is that this is a kingdom that deals with the unseen in terms of hearts and minds. This is focusing on the internal realities of our internal and unseen selves. And the promise is, if we focus there and put our energy there, that that will affect the physical reality, 
but that's the order. In fact, what Jesus is essentially initiating is there's a higher order of living, not just living on the level of the physical and letting our, you know, even just our physical bodies, physical needs drive us, not even just functioning on the level of, you know, the mental, um, which, you know, there were plenty of Greek uh, philosophers that had tried to deal with the tricky issues of human life through just thinking through them. He's saying there is a spiritual order and that God is this king who's going to come and govern everything and govern even our hearts and minds. So it's a it, it's getting things in the right order. And so he uses the two words, repent and believe this gospel. Repent just literally means to rethink your thinking. It means that in the light of this new reality, think about how you're thinking about the world and about life. Notice what you're thinking. Become aware of what you're thinking. And that thinking needs to be reshaped in light of this new reality. And then he uses the word believe, which, you know, we tend to put again in this theology category, which is like, I need to believe these certain things in order to go to heaven. That word believe is more like when, if someone were to come to you and say, hey, believe in me. Like, what does that make you think of? Um, that probably does not make you think of someone saying, believe that I exist, or believe some abstract fact about me. What they're saying is, do you trust me? Are you going to like put, like be confident that I can do what I say I can do? Believe in me. Put your confidence in me. This is the belief. So we got to think when, when we see that word believe, we got to think in terms of trust and confidence. So let me just admit, this does involve a theological shift about who is God and what is God like. And, you know, we've been talking about that in our, my recordings as I talk with Dan. You know, this is a big emphasis. But essentially, Jesus' message is a pragmatic shift versus theoretical. Theoretical allows us to believe things that essentially don't, um, don't mean that we really have to change anything about what we actually do. We can just kind of get into a head game about these things. Um, but the question really that Jesus is asking is, what does it mean for your life that a new kingdom and a new king is here and now? And that is the pragma, uh, pragmatic conversation I'd like to get into. So let me say a couple things about what I think about this new reality, what we see in Jesus and what that means spiritual living is for us. So, the first major issue that gets raised when we start talking like this, for those of us who've been raised in modern Christianity, is that we have either like outright been told or just kind of, um, you know, subtly this is insinuated in everything or a lot that is done in the churches that we have grown up in, is that the goal is right beliefs. And by beliefs, what we mean is these theories that we learn to sort of parrot, like we just say, this is what you need to believe. And so we accept that intellectually, and then we can say it. And those tend to be answers about, you know, what is God like? Um, what do we think about the Bible, you know, heaven and hell, salvation. It's, it's all these sort of articles of faith. These are things that, as I've said, essentially allow you to believe them without really having to do anything. You know, I, I don't really need to change anything about the way that I actually live my life in order to say that the Bible is, you know, what I believe about the inspiration of the Bible. 
Um, I don't essentially have to believe anything about my life or change anything about the way I live my life if I, you know, express certain beliefs about heaven and hell, because that's all later. And most of what we have um, latched onto in our modern Christian context, especially in the Protestant um, um, uh, movement of all these denominations that distinguish themselves with all these sort of lesser important things, um, most of them really have very little to do with how we actually live our lives. You know, how you get baptized. <laughs> Can you sprinkle? Do you dunk? You know, how you do communion, all, all these kinds of things. And we just have lists and lists and lists of them. But Jesus' announcement, as I said, is about living in this different reality, which actually does change how you live your life. Um, and he labeled that reality, this new reality, the kingdom of God. So from this new reality then, so imagine, imagine Jesus coming and saying, hey, you know, his, miss- his message is to announce this new reality. The kingdom of God is here. So how is he going to convince people and welcome people into it? Well, he's got to do a couple things. One thing is he's got to explain and teach about it. And he's got to approach all of the essential issues that humans have to deal with from the standpoint of this new reality. And when we read Jesus' teachings, again, we have turned them into nice theological you know, uh, statements or truths that we can sort of parrot um, but imagine Jesus explaining people and trying to get them to see things are different in the kingdom of God and in this reality, which means the way we live should reflect that. So, for example, one of the big issues that humans have always had to face, and the Greek philosophers, you know, were the kind of the, the big hitters of Jesus' day, um, what does it mean to be a good person? Who's a good person? You know, is it somebody who's really smart? Is it somebody who's really talented? <clears throat> is it someone who has become successful or powerful? And, you know, we can look back to what we talked about with the pure love teaching about understanding we have this performance list of things and we say, these things, what do they say about us, right? So the current teaching uh, at the time was that, well, a good person is someone who can follow the law of Moses. You know, they can, they, they tithe, you know, they, um, they give, they pray, they do all these things. And so you have these religious elites who have kind of put this on display and look what I do. And of course, Jesus is like, well, that's kind of worrying about the outside of the cup and I'm more concerned about the inside of the cup and then the outside will take care of itself. So let me ask us, just a very practical thing for us to ask and talk about is what is our current teaching about what it means to be a good person? If you ask people in the church or if you go listen to sermons, what do you hear that instructs you about who the good person really is. I think that um, in Jesus' teaching, what he's communicating to us is that a good person is someone whose interior life, heart, mind, however we want to talk about that, is being governed by the law of the kingdom of God, which is love. So Jesus teaches the greatest commandment. Um, love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. This is essentially the good person. And that, and he describes that good person and how they behave in all these different scenarios, right? Um, what about the question of, well, who's a person who is actually like very well off? In other words, who's a person who has it really good in life? Who is the envious person? 
person that when you look at that person, you should say, oh, that, that's a good place to be, you know, in a healthy sense. I wish I could be there. Like, that's what it looks like to be in a really good spot. Um, the current teaching of the day was often one who is blessed with health and wealth, right? If you're sick, it's because God cursed you. If you're poor, it's, you know, for whatever reason, like a, a good place to be is someone who is, you know, healthy and wealthy. And I think that our current teaching echoes that. Um, if you look around our current day, we look people. We look for people who are in really good situations and good circumstances, and we say, oh, they're in a good spot, right? And we look at people who are in bad situations, bad circumstances, and we say, ooh, they're in a bad spot. They're not well off. Um, Jesus' teaching is quite different. <laughs> you read the Beatitudes, and you can see very quickly who is blessed in the kingdom of God. So he's saying that People who are well off and who are in a good spot are those who are experiencing the reality of God's care and provision so they are free from the internal issues, not the external, not the physical issues, but the internal issues, the things that sort of rot us from the inside out, fear, worry, stress, etc. And that those things um, are, are regardless of their circumstances. So again, echoing like, the other New Testament writers saying things like, I have learned the secret of being content in all situations, right? Or Jesus is teaching where he says, you know, why do you worry about all these things? Instead, seek first what? Seek first the kingdom of God. So <clears throat> there is a, apparently, another reality, a higher order of being cared for, of what goodness is and what it means to be in a good position in life, regardless of the physical and circumstantial things that are taking place all around us. And that definitely affect us. But Jesus is saying there is a, there is a, a better way, right? Uh, I keep using the term higher order, but there is another level of living on that is untouchable by all of these things. And so within that new reality, as Jesus is teaching and explaining this, then he demonstrates it, right? And so the people who are watching him, hanging out with him, are, are looking at his life and saying, this is completely different. Um, what was different about Jesus's life? Well, let's just start with the super simple and say, I think it's reasonable to say that Jesus was not a stressed out person. They were not impressed with his anxiety. They were oppressed with his ability to be relaxed in all sorts of crazy circumstances, like being in a boat in the storm when the rest of the people in the boat think they're going to drown. And Jesus is, you know, sound asleep and totally aware that he is being cared for. That is not a theoretical idea for Jesus. That is a reality. Um, or how about how Jesus was able to deeply love and accept people regardless of their position and his attachment to their position and how it made him look? In other words, he had totally separated himself from needing approval from people. Again, we've got all these you know, truths and Christian teachings or whatever that tell us that, but we get stuck in recognizing that we're still attached to approval, and this new kingdom reality is trying to move us into a different place of living. What about how Jesus exercised authority, like spiritual authority, on behalf of other people? So he's healing, as I said, spiritual, but he's also doing physical healings. And one of my favorite examples of this is the paralytic that comes on the mat, and Jesus forgives his sins. <laughs> and I just think that's like, this is so um, Jesus functioning from another reality. 
Because as soon as he forgives his sins, I can imagine the paralytic being like, that's not why I'm here. At least he thinks that's not why he's there. And of course, the other, the, the, you know, the spiritual elites saying, you can't do that. Um, that's blasphemy. And then Jesus' response is, well, just so you know that I can do that, I'm also going to heal his body. And that should be proof enough for you. And then he tells the man to pick up his mat and walk. So again, Jesus is ordering the spiritual prioritized above the physical. Um, and then finally, of course, the big moment where Jesus sacrifices himself for the sake of the world um, and then receives his life back. And for the followers of Jesus, this is the ultimate proof. And it's not, a, <laughs> when I say proof, I, I immediately realize like, oh, okay, we're going to interpret proof as somebody preaching or apologetics saying, all these things that I'm teaching you out of the Bible are true, and if you give mental assent to them, you'll go to heaven one day. Proof for the followers of Jesus was, Jesus was who he said he was, and everything that he told us about this new reality is actually real, because his body died and now he's alive again. And what that means is we need to fundamentally rethink how we are living our lives, and their lives do completely change. So when we look at Jesus' experience, we can compare it to our experience. And we can look at Jesus' behavior and say, okay, the things Jesus did are a very real result of his very real experience in God's kingdom. In other words, as Jesus would say, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only hear what I hear the Father doing. There is this connection uh, displayed for people to hear and see even at places like his baptism, the dove comes down, the voice from heaven, or the transfiguration up on the mount. So the people around Jesus are always asking him, how do you do the things you do? How are you doing this? And, you know, oftentimes also, well, how can we do this? Especially the disciples, well, how, you know, how, how can we do these things? And Jesus's answer is so awesome. He doesn't give them a steps, uh, you know, a, a list of steps. He in, instead says things like believe. And so r- right away, Jesus is moving from the realm of the physical. What do I need to do? And he's prioritizing this spiritual reality. What is your confidence in? Again, a different kind of belief. We have to put our confidence in something else. What would happen if a person truly, confidently, wholeheartedly trusted at every level of their being, everything that Jesus said. What would that life look like? And let me give a couple examples to help flesh this out. For example, Jesus said, it's always better to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, if I truly believed that, I would never ever be tempted, as I can often be, to let my yes kind of be a maybe or a no and to let my no maybe be a maybe or a yes. (laughs) Um, That is extremely practical. If I really, at the deepest core of myself, trusted and was confident in this reality of the kingdom, that it is always better to let my yes be yes and my no be no, that would change how I live, how I interact, how I talk with people. Or here's another example. If I truly believed at the depths of my soul 
that every debt that I conceive that I owe to God or to myself or to others or whoever, um, whether it's sort of you know wrongs that I've done or things that I feel like I should do that I can't or whatever, that all of those debts have been wiped clean, that I literally don't owe God anything, that God is not looking at me with this list or saying these are the things I need to fix or to um, make up for, which means then that I can not hold a debt against anyone else. Imagine how accepting that reality at a deep, deep level changes then my interactions with other people or changes even my thought process about them. Um, Here's one last little practical one. Jesus taught a, a parable about a guy who built big barns because he was so prosperous and he stored all his things and then he died. <laughs> um, he was content to live his, you know, in his retirement and his old age and have all that he needed and, and then he died. And Jesus' teaching is that it's wiser to be generous um, than it is to build big barns. What if I, at every level of my life and at every, you know, every corner of my soul and thought process was so convinced and so confident that it is better to be generous than to build big barns? What if, what if that was true and about me? How would that change the way that I lived every single day? What kind of decisions, uh, actions would I take or not take? So <clears throat> I feel a caution in me right now that as I just use those examples how many times have we heard sermons about what we're supposed to be like and what we're supposed to do? And then we leave and then we find out that, you know, we can't do it or that's not some, you know, that's, I, I kind of admit, okay, I, at some level, I don't believe these things. And we get in this really awkward position. I'm going to address that, just not yet. So hang with me. So Jesus' experience is that he's ordering his life, prioritizing his life around this reality that he is absolutely aware of and convinced of. God's presence, God's provision, God's ability, God's love, these things are all more real to Jesus than anything, and the result is then what we see in his behavior. So I can ask myself, you know, well, what's real to me? All I have to do is look at my life, and my life will tell me what I believe and and what is real and what is true. Uh, what I prioritize, what I have confidence in. Um, that doesn't have to be a condemning process if we have set ourselves up in through pure love and understanding that we are valuable regardless of all of those things. It just allows us to take an honest assessment. What we tend to try to do then is when we look at those things, we, trend, we, we, we tend to try to go backwards. We tend to try to then do these things, right? So... <clears throat> If I, let's say I want to be a more generous person, I tend to then put into action acts of generosity. Obviously not a bad thing, but that doesn't always or fully deal with the spiritual or heart level reality that I'm trying to deal with. And and so this is the pattern that we find in spiritual living. If we try to follow Jesus, we soon discover that we can't. <laughs> we can't do these things. We can't do the things in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we we hit these sort of roadblocks as we go along and we realize, oh, there's something in me that is not convinced. Um, And that is a very uncomfortable and awkward place to sit. But if we're willing to sit with that long enough, this, this I can't, if we're willing to be there with God, God will then unearth what we really believe and what we really trust. And that is where our journey needs to go. We need to address these things. 
and how we address these things is very, very practical, which is, again, what more of these talks are going to be about. But if we don't understand the spiritual context, the spiritual living, what we'll do is we'll get stuck thinking, all I can do is try harder. And I think where a lot of, maybe us all have landed, is that we have tried because we are, we want to do what is right. We have tried. And in our failure to do what we believe and what we want to do, we get stuck because at a certain point, you just can't try any harder. And you realize that you're trying, you're trying to do the things is not really helping. Um, and, and it becomes sort of a, um, we have these two false choices set before us. We can either try harder or we can just sort of accept that we can't and then sort of live in this space of just kind of feeling like this is what it is. And there really doesn't appear to be a path forward. So let me just say a couple a couple def- defining statements about spiritual living, and then uh, we'll leave it there and get on to some much more practical talks after this. Spirit, number one, spiritual living prioritizes what's going on in my soul. So we have to be careful and wary of the temptation to want to focus the attention on what I can and can't do without being aware of what's going on in my thought life, my, feeling, my feelings, and the level of my intention or my will. So another way of saying this is the focus is not behavior modification. I'm not trying to modify my behaviors to look a certain way. That ends, as I was talking about, in legalism, and it's not really dealing, focusing on the interior reality. So how do I focus on the soul? What I'm focusing on is what God is bringing into my soul. And here's a great just little teaching that I think is very helpful. Grace, which we often think of as God just kind of being okay with us even though we're not really that good or something. The Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, is connected to the word gifts, charisma, in the New Testament. These are both Greek words and they're linked, they're related. Now, when you think of grace and you think of the gifts of God, we tend to think of something different. Grace is like this general mood God has, and gifts are like these sort of, you know, cherries on top. But they're actually fully linked. And we have to think about the grace that we received, not on a one-time basis, not on an occasional basis, but on a moment-by-moment, day-to-day basis. The grace is the source of the gifts that we receive into our souls, So if you go look at the gifts of the Spirit, what you're looking at are gifts that God is giving us in our hearts, in our minds, and in our intentions. The gifts that are coming into our souls that then reshape us on the inside and allow us to behave differently. So think of grace as input, what I'm receiving from God, and it's it's reshaping and it's fueling my interior life so that I have something from which to give. That's the focus. If I want to be gracious, then I, I've got to receive something. And it's that input that we're focusing on. So spiritual living is asking the question, what do I need? How, how do I position myself to receive in my interior life so that the life of God is then coming into me, the life that really is life? So that's number one. I'm, I'm focusing on this interior life. And what do I need to 
to do? How do I position myself to receive? Now, I've just said that we're focusing on the soul, the interior life. We're not focused on behavior modification. Now, let me say something that sounds like a paradox. Spiritual living requires doing things with our bodies. This is the second thing I want to say about spiritual living. If we relegate spiritual living just to a head game, thoughts that we're thinking, uh, feelings that we're feeling, nothing's going to happen. Why is that? Um, Let me use an example of, let's say I want to be a good tennis player. I want to be able to play tennis well against people and I want to win, okay? I cannot become a good tennis player just by playing tennis matches. Why? Because playing a, a tennis match involves a whole set of smaller skills that I have to develop. And so when I learn to play tennis, what I do is I break down all of those skills into small bite-sized things that I can do. And I practice those individual things. Now, what I do is then I go occasionally and I play a tennis match and I play against somebody. And, and whether I win or lose that match isn't really the point. What I'm discovering in that match is where my training is working and where it's not working. Or which aspects of my training are lacking and which aspects are succeeding. And then I can go back to my training and I can rethink how I'm training and what I'm doing and adjust my training so that the next time I'm in a match, hopefully my training has led to being able to play better, right? So one way to think about this kind of training is we are, we are not approaching becoming a good tennis player directly by just trying to be a good tennis player. And you could put this in any category like learning a language or becoming proficient at some skill or whatever. We have to break it down into its smaller pieces to do things that we can do so that when we get into the scenario, the things that we used to not be able to do, now we can actually do those better. Okay? So <clears throat> in that sense, the match, the real-life scenario, the situation doesn't determine how good of a person or, you know, how, whether or not I'm actually on this journey. What really, what really matters is what's going on in my training. And then I just look at my successes and, quote, failures as indicators of what I need to go back and keep working on. I heard a 10-year-old chess player, I think he was uh, one of the newest master chess players in the United States. He's this 10-year-old kid. And he has this quote where he says, uh, you know, somebody was asking him, like, how does it feel to, you know, to lose to these older players or whatever? And he says, well, you know, for me, it's not really, I, I don't really think about it that much. I just discover, you know, you only lose a chess match if you, if you make a mistake. And so every time I lose, I just learn one more thing not to do. And so I go back and I practice that. That was this 10-year-old's mentality. And I was just thinking, man, what, a, what an awesome, healthy mentality to have. So, how we could apply this to wanting to become uh, different kinds of people, people who are living from this new reality of the kingdom. Number one, if I'm taking Jesus seriously, let's say I have a goal. My goal isn't to become a great tennis player. Let's say my goal is to bless those who curse me. (laughs) Because apparently Jesus said it's really better for us if we can be the kind of people who are able to bless when when we're being cursed. So now I need to kind of step back from that and ask myself, well, what what does that break down into? What do I really need to understand or trust in? And what do I need to practice? 
What does my training look like for becoming that kind of person? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does the process look like that I need to engage in if God is presenting me with this issue? Now, we can easily get overwhelmed and look at all the teachings of Jesus and we can say, I need to fix all these things about my life. That'll kill you. So instead, letting God direct you and say, what is the thing? What can I identify that God is inviting me to grow in? And then what does a, act, what does a process, a training look like that leads me in that direction? And that's what I really want to focus on over the course of this summer is this very practical and pragmatic training. Um, because at some point, again, I'm going to be confer- confronted with somebody who's going to curse me. And what I do in that moment is going to reveal what the process of training has looked like. And whether I bless in that or curse in that moment is really not the issue. I know what I want to do. I don't know, and I don't have direct willpower over what I will do in that moment. So what I want to do is address my training and who I'm, how I'm being shaped behind the scenes so that what happens in the match, in the game, is a natural uh, product of what has happened in my training. So in this sense, spiritual living is not theoretical, it's not impractical, and it's also not disembodied. But it's recognizing that we are spiritual beings who have bodies as parts of ourselves, and we're living in our bodies, and our bodies have been trained over time to react, to respond. We have these ingrained, wired-in habits to our brains and what the New Testament writers refer to as our flesh. It's in us. It has a life of its own. And it needs to be retrained and reorganized under this new um, prioritization of the spirit. So that's what we're learning. This is where things like spiritual exercises, practices, and disciplines come in. Okay, thirdly, spiritual living means learning to live my normal everyday life in God's kingdom. And I just wanted to say, this is not about being a hero. It's not about taking on some massive, gigantic task in order to prove that we're doing big things with God. People in the past moved out into the desert, you know, uh, m- you know, people moved to other countries to kind of go say, I'm going to go do this big thing for God. If God is asking me to do it, that's fine. But generally, God is asking us to live where he's put us because we're here for a reason. God has placed you in the life you're in to influence your corner of the world. And it tends to be that if we don't start where we are, we just never really start. So if we don't start in our home, if we don't start in works uh, or where we work, if we don't start in our neighborhood with our friends, in our church. Um, We just never really get started. So starting where we are, recognizing that our life, the situations and circumstances of our normal everyday life are the realm where God wants to begin with us. And then lastly, spiritual living is a lifelong journey. And by lifelong, I actually mean eternal. It's going to be a journey we're on forever, discovering the endless and limitless eternal um, goodness of God that we'll never get to the bottom of. So in that sense, we cannot make perfection our goal. Instead, we have to make our goal to take every new step as a win in and of itself. Every new step, every every, uh, revelation, every invitation, every little win in the match, every discovery of a new practice that's connecting with me and reshaping me, it's all a win. It's all to be celebrated and it's all to be enjoyed. I read a statement recently that says, God allows us to be happy sinners. (laughs) What a great statement. It's like, yeah, I recognize that I am still functioning in non-reality and in disconnectedness and I get in a dirty water and I can still be joyful. 
I can still be a happy person and enjoy the life that I have been given. God allows that. God has made room for that. But this is the journey we're going to be on forever. So I vote we get used to it now. <laughs> um, and the other aspect of the fact of that this is going to be a forever journey, or this is like a long-term thing, this is a marathon, not a sprint, is that friends and community are required. No one can do this alone. Um, the race is too long. Um, you can only hold out on your own for so long before discouragement will inevitably settle in. And I love that God has designed it this way because we have a built-in need for each other. And it's that need for each other that will keep us from being self-centered and making this an egotistical journey. It's recognizing that some, some seasons of this journey, I, I get to give a lot and I get to support other people and there's so much that I grow in and learn from. And then there are other seasons of the journey where I get to receive a lot and I'm faced with my own limitations um, and it feels like I have, I have nothing to give. And in those seasons, I'm growing just as much um, and that other people, I'm giving other people the opportunity to love me and to grow by loving and helping me. Um, this reciprocal dynamic of the kingdom is, is a part of the reality of the Trinity, of who God is and what we have been invited into. And it's also probably the greatest joy, if we can let it be, this give and take. And what we gain is relationships forever. Um, I really believe that relationships are forever. And so what we're gaining as we do this together is relationships that are forever. Whether or not we live in the same area or go to the same church, whether or not we get to be engaged at a deep level forever, or maybe it's like we really have kind of an intense season together and then life shifts and we're doing different things, but we're still on this journey together. And we have, we have what we have. We have gained the relationship that we have gained and seasons come and seasons go. But ultimately, we are all heading to the same place together. And that journey never ends. That's very exciting to me. Um, and that, for me, is the worthwhile work and energy of putting it in, the, the energy into our, our relationships and getting to know each other and learning how to live vulnerably and trustingly with one another. I had no idea how long that was going to take, but there it is. I hope you divided it up into a few different sessions. <laughs> Thanks for hanging in there. Hopefully, over the next couple months, I'll get better, and I will definitely get more concise. Um, but that's all for today. I hope you can take this talk, some of these ideas, what, what stuck out to you, bring it into your one-on-one -on -one conversations, and um, yeah, we'll just keep going together. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.